just looking out there, I assume that you're here because you remember to change your clocks, right? Today is a daylight savings time where we spring forward, we lose an hour. I'm not really a morning person, so daylight savings day in um, spring is not my favorite thing. Uh, losing an hour of sleep is a really hard thing for me to go through. And this morning, I was really, really tired. So getting up was a chore, but I knew I had to do that because if I was not here, you wouldn't be getting a message. So it was important for me to wake up, to come. But I have to admit, I was reluctant to get up. Reluctant to get up. Reluctancy. That's apparently our topic for today. We're going to be talking about that condition of reluctancy. And that's the same attitude that the prophet Jonah had. Jonah was a reluctant missionary. We are in the midst of a, a sermon series that we've called To the Ends of the Earth. And it's a sermon series about global missions in particular. And for the first couple of weeks, we're talking about the question, we're asking the question, why should we care about global missions? Last week, Pastor Andrew was talking about God's plan for his people, that we would be a blessing to all others, to other nations. And if we are to grow in our love of God, that we would also begin to care for the same things that God cares for. However, many of us, like the prophet Jonah, don't really care about global missions. Yet we should care because God's purpose for his people is to be involved in missions. That is how God made us. Now, if you recall, in the Genesis story, the story tells us that when God created mankind, he said, let us make man in our own image. So we are godlike in our Im image. So if we are godlike, then we should be doing godlike things. And God has a, a compassion for those who are not in his family. And so likewise, we, once we have um, decided to commit our lives to, to Jesus and to be part of God's family again, we should care about the same thing that God cares for, especially those who are not in his family. And that's how it works. Now, I know a lot of you are sleep deprived, if you're like me. If you are, I know how it's going to work. As I keep talking, a lot of you are going to doze off. <laughs> it happens. And that's okay. So right off the bat, I want you to remember just one thing. One very important thing that, that if you miss out on the rest of what I'm going to talk about today, the main idea is missions is not what we do. Missions is who we are. Again, missions is not what we do. Missions is who we are. If we have committed our lives to Christ, if we are reborn in our new being, our, within our DNA, we should be wanting to do missions. It's just part of us. It's like salmon. Salmon have an instinctive nature of going upstream to spawn. We, as God's image bearers, should then be instinctively motivated to do missions. We should be mission-minded. And this morning, we are going to look at the story of Jonah. 
in the Old Testament. And so if you want to follow along, if you look in your Bibles, and we're going to look at the story of Jonah, who apparently is a reluctant missionary. And that, I would make the case now that a lot of us are like Jonah. So reading Jonah 1, verses 1 to 3, starting with verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So right off the bat, we hear in the story of Jonah that God calls Jonah to go on a mission, to go to Nineveh to preach to the Ninevites. But immediately, we see that Jonah's reaction to God's call is to run away. To give you an idea of, of what, what's happening here, uh, Jonah is going as far away from Nineveh by going to Tarshish. To comparative would be instead of going to New York, he's actually heading out to Hawaii. He's going in opposite directions, and he's going overseas to do it. And he's boarding a ship. And, and, you know, when I hear this, this actually makes sense. I can identify with Jonah. Because last week, if you recall, I think Pastor Andrew was talking about uh, the call to Abram to go and leave. And then the scripture seems to show that Abram had no hesitancy. He just immediately got up, left his country, left his people, left his culture, left his, even his family, his household, to go. And go wherever God pointed him. And that, for me, doesn't quite make sense, right? I don't know if I could just pick up and leave. Here, this makes sense. Jonah has some doubts. And he, instead of immediately obeying, he runs in the opposite direction. And I think, for me, that's a normal reaction. And that's why my first point is reluctance is the norm. And that's okay. Just to admit that that reluctance is the norm. And what does it mean to be reluctant? The word reluctant means hesitant, unenthusiastic, uneager, and even if it's taken to the extreme, maybe repulsed. Jonah had a good reason to be reluctant. Because if you know the context of who the Ninevites were, the Ninevites, Nineveh, which is a great city, is part of Assyria. They're a very aggressive, very violent and cruel people, very wicked. And they were the enemies of Israel. And what the Ninevites, what Ninevites did to their enemies was essentially when they captured them, they would chop off their heads, put their heads on a stake, and put them up for other people to see just to show how violent they were. And so for God to tell Jonah who is an Israelite, to go send a message to, to the Ninevites wasn't something that Jonah looked forward to do. He had a legitimate reason to fear for his own, his own life. And, and to run away would be kind of the normal thing you would expect. So what does it, how does it feel um, to be reluctant? How does it, what does it look like? Just to kind of create that feeling here, I need a volunteer. 
already when I ask that question, I know a lot of you are getting anxious because they're wondering, will Pastor Calvin actually call me out? And there's a certain amount of reluctancy here. So before I call out somebody, is there anybody here brave enough just to come up here? I know a lot of you, this is normal. Your eyes are starting to go look down. They're trying to avoid eye contact with me. Even more anxiousness. So I'm going to look in the crowd, and I need somebody who is, oh, Scott Lynn. Perfect. Come on up. <laughs> the reason I'm doing this is because a lot of times things that get us nervous, especially cross-culturally, is especially missions involves going cross-culturally, that a lot of times it involves eating certain foods. <laughs> so the first thing I'm going to ask, do you have any food allergies? Okay, good. <laughs> and do you, do you like to eat eggs? Okay. Have you ever eaten a balut? <laughs> Look, oh, fortunately, I don't have a balut. I, I was going to ask uh, JD to get me one. If you don't know what a balut is, it's actually a boiled egg or duck embryo. So it's half formed and you get to eat that. I didn't bring that. Instead, <laughs> I brought this. This is, if you don't know, it's actually cod roll. It's an egg sack. And it, uh, it's a delicacy. It's actually raw. So any squirmish here? I'm adventurous. Go ahead, take a taste. <laughs> you can take that with you and enjoy the rest of it. <laughs> well, thank you, Scott. <laughs> it is. It's, it's good to eat over rice, as you said, or put it into seaweed. So what I've de demonstrated, there are a lot of you out there where he was eating. I don't know if some of you are getting a little squirmish or that's queasy. Some people can't stand raw eggs. Um, it's actually pretty good if you ever had it. Um, I remember as a kid, we used to eat it all the time. And we would actually fight over it when, when you had steamed fish some of the rock cods and stuff is the, the cod, uh, the egg sac. But that kind of feeling about being reluctant is common in our, in our lives. It's actually a good thing. God designed us to have some reluctancy because it means that we're just being cautious, careful, wise, and that is a normal feeling. But sometimes that reluctancy, if taken to an extreme, can prevent us from doing the right thing. And here we're talking about global missions. And a lot of times, a lot of us, like Jonah, have this kind of reluctancy. And so my question for a lot of us to wrestle with, some of us are being reluctant about doing something in our life. And, and maybe it's something that's involving a work situation. Or maybe a, a, a needy family member. Or a relationship that's gone wrong. If that's the case, maybe this week is a time where we need to bring that up to God. And prayer is usually the best way to do it. And if there's something you're struggling with, something you're reluctant about doing, maybe something God wants to change in your life, 
there's an opportunity to receive prayer later in the service. In the back, we'll have prayer ministers out there. And you can bring this up to God as there is something in your life that you feel that you're reluctant to do. Then maybe receive some prayer. On my driver's license, there's a box on my license, uh, on the, my license that says that I have to wear corrective lenses, that I can't drive because I don't have 20-40 vision, that I need either contacts or glasses to drive. And, and as we all approach the age of 40 or beyond, whether you had to wear glasses or not, a lot of us have to wear corrective lenses so that we can read, right? It's, it's kind of normal to have to wear corrective lenses. And, and my point here is that in life, a lot of times as we're going along in life, sometimes we go astray or some things become unfocused and we need a correction. And so my point is that a lot of times in life, God has to make that correction that we have to receive a divine corrective. And Jonah experienced this firsthand. And he experienced this in the belly of a fish. Jonah runs away. And, and, and when he hears the call to go to Nineveh, and he boards a ship, and he's going in the opposite direction towards Tarshish. But while he's on the ship, God creates a storm. And the ship is rocking in the ocean. And the sailors on the ship are afraid. And these are professional sailors, and they are thinking they're going to die because of the storm. And they figure out that the cause of the storm is, is Jonah. So they decide to throw him off the ship so that they would get rid of the cause of the storm. And God creates this big fish that swallows Jonah. And this is where Jonah is experiencing his divine correction. He's there for three days and three nights in the belly of this fish. In Jonah um, chapter 1, verse 17, it says this, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Three days and three nights. Does that sound familiar to some of us? If you recall, that's the story of Jesus after he was crucified brought down from the cross, he was put into a tomb, and he was there for three days and three nights. The good news is he, he res resurrected from the dead, but for three days and three nights, he was in a dark tomb. And Jonah is experiencing the same thing now in the belly of the fish. And it's dark in there. It's smelly in there. It's probably pretty warm. It's probably the closest experience of being in hell. And Jonah is, is essentially looking at death. And in that midst of that kind of experience, Jonah gets an epiphany. He gets back to his senses. And he realizes an important truth. And he admits it. And he confesses it. And he says, that the Lord is his savior, savior. And that are wor is words that 
pleases God. Jonah 2, verse 7 through 10 is part of Jonah's prayer while he's in the belly of the fish. Starting with verse 7. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Here Jonah realized who his savior was, and that was God. And in the prayer, Jonah surrendered his life and was in a sense reborn and given a second chance. So my question, hearing those verses of where Jonah comes to his senses and confesses an important truth that deliverance comes from God, that God is his savior. Some of us in this room are probably going through something similar to Jonah's experience, that we are in the midst of in the belly of the great fish experience. And a lot of us maybe not literally dying, but maybe figuratively. And if that's the case, can you come to this real realization to make God your savior, to say that, to confess that? And if you can, God understands where you are and he will not abandon you. And that is a question that many of us need to wrestle with in the midst of trials. Now back to the story of Jonah. Jonah is given a second chance. And we read from Jonah 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So, so this, this story continues where Jonah is given a second chance, right? He was originally told to go tell this uh, message to the Ninevites by God, but he, his first reaction is to run away. So God puts him in the belly of a fish, and so Jonah comes to his senses, and he says, okay, I will do what God tells me to do because you, God, are my savior. So he goes to, to Nineveh, apparently, according to chapter 3, and he gives this message that God wants him to say to the Ninevites. Now, you have to imagine that, that, that Jonah is doing this with an attitude that's a little begrudging. Because if you look at the message, it's not a really loving message. It's not like, excuse me, um, Ninevites, uh, would you stop what you're doing because God doesn't like it? And, and would you like to, to understand the love that God has for you? And would you like to be part of his family again? Now, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that Jonah goes and says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, just imagine, 
you're the, one of the greatest warrior countries in the world, the, the, the Syrians, the Ninevites, and you have this Israelite, this one-man army come and tell you uh, you're wicked and that God's going to come and destroy you. That's not what, something you would want to hear. And, but Jonah, with that kind of ad- attitude, goes to the Ninevites and gives a message that says, you're actually going to get overthrown. And that's actually what prophets do. They're, they do that to, throughout the Old Testament. Prophets go and say very difficult messages to other people and essentially telling people you're wicked and you need to turn around. Now, Jonah complies and he does that. And to his surprise, the Ninevites actually believe him. And they immediately put on sackcloth and they begin to repent of their wickedness. And God uh, sees this and spares them. Now Jonah begrudgingly shared this this message to the Ninevites, and they, they, they repented. And he's not happy about this. Some of the context you have to understand. Remember I said that the, the Ninevites are Israelites' enemies? And, and a lot of the Israelites, Jonah included, had this attitude that they were special. They were God's chosen people. And they had started to develop a pridefulness about it, that they didn't want it to happen to anybody else. I mean, you know, some of us have grown up with uh, other siblings in our family, and there's always one that's a favorite of mom and dad. And when you're the favorite, you don't want anybody else in the family to be the favorite child. It's kind of a special place. And here, the same thing was happening with the Israelites. They were feeling, we're special, and it's, it's an exclusive club. We don't want anybody else to be in it. And so Jonah was being very disappointed in God. He was actually very upset and angry that God would want to choose other people, Gentiles, especially, that's the name for it, non-Jews, that God would have compassion and love for non-Jewish people. But that's who God is. God is a loving God that includes everyone, whether you're Jewish or not Jewish. But this is something that, that was eating away at Jonah, and so that was part of the prevention of him being his reluctance to share the good news to the Ninevites because he didn't want anybody else to be included in that family. But the Ninevites heard Jonah and repented and they wore sackcloth. So the point here is in spite of Jonah, the gospel has amazing power on its own. And that's something a lot of us need to remember that the gospel has power on its own in spite of us. Now, some of you know that, that um, I'm a dentist, so I do dentist stuff. And one of the things I do is I extract teeth. And so what I'm doing, this is kind of a visual. And actually, you know, uh, I don't know if some of you are maybe are in dental school or thinking of going to dentistry, um, extracted teeth is like gold to us. Because when you're going through your dental training, we need these teeth to practice on. Because you can't do it on every human possible. So sometimes our procedures, we learn on extracted teeth. So sometimes we have to buy these off of other students 
because they are hard to get, especially when you want certain, certain teeth in the mouth. But I bring this up because you've heard the saying, the saying like pulling teeth, right? I'm making the statement that for a lot of us, sharing the gospel is like pulling teeth. Pulling teeth means it's really hard to do. To get somebody, like getting your kid to do their chores is like pulling teeth. It's like almost impossible. And so some of us have the same attitude as when we are trying to do missions or share the gospel with someone. It's like pulling teeth. And that's, that, that was the mindset of Jonah. For him to go do this message to the Ninevites was like pulling teeth. And that, that was hard for him to do. I've been doing, during this season, last couple of months, a lot of memorial services. And um, during the memorial services, I usually like to share the gospel. Early in my uh, pastoral career, when I was doing uh, funeral services, I was always a little hesitant of, of sharing the gospel. Because I, I didn't want to offend people. I didn't want to upset them, uh, especially when I'm doing memorial services. Because I have no no issues with doing memorial services for people who are not, not Christians, you know, unbelievers. And, and especially in Asian cultures, a lot of families are Buddhist. And I've had um, at memorial services, family members talk over me while I'm sharing the gospel. So Chinese people can be pretty rude and Buddhist people can do that too, but I, that's not a problem. But when I was first doing it, I was a little hesitant and I was a little bit um, uh, fearful of doing it. But after 20 years, it's not a problem anymore because each time I do it, even though if I'm hesitant, when I share simply John 3.16, where God says that he loved the world so much that he would give his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I share that is because God loves everyone. There's always one or two people who will come up to me and thank me for sharing that. And so that's an encouragement that the gospel in itself has a power. And, and we can't hinder it by our own reluctance, our own hesitancy, our own fear of sharing the gospel. The message of Jesus is a compelling one. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are compelled to share the good news to the world. My last point is this, is that we are to respect the creator, not the creation. And Jonah had to be reminded of this. And we see this in Jonah 4, verses 1 through 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, God, now Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? So even though Jonah has this experience of going to Nineveh and sharing the message of God, wanting them to repent, 
and the miracle of miracles happens, something that Jonah begrudgingly did, but he didn't think would happen, is actually the people believed him, and they turned away from their wickedness and, and repented, and God then, seeing this, uh, saved them from destruction. And here, after that great miracle that, that Jonah was part of, he's still angry. He's angry and upset with God. He says it right there, that how could you do this? And, and that, that was exactly the reason why I ran away. But I, I actually did it. And, and for Jonah, this was something that he was so upset that he wanted to die. So he went, sat in the desert and, and, and just wanted to die under the hot sun. And then God was compassionate. So he actually grew a plant next to, 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 to Jonah to provide shade. And so Jonah appreciated that shade that the plant gave him. But then the next day, one day later, God created a worm to eat the plant, so the plant died. And so Jonah is then angry again, and he's upset because he had a lot of good feelings for the plant because the plant provided him shade. <clears throat> but now he's upset again because the plant died. And, and so God says this in verses 10 through 11. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? It's kind of odd, if you read this, that this is the end of Jonah. You, if you read, these are the last two verses in the book of Jonah. And it doesn't really have any conclusion. It's, it's God speaking these words. So the first point here is to understand that God always has the last word. Jonah doesn't, there's no recording of what Jonah says. It just has what God says. And so this is something we have to re be reminded that God is the boss. He has the last word. And he's saying here to Jonah, and then simply to us, he, he's telling Jonah, you seem to have more um, feelings and compassion for the plant that died. And you didn't even create it. As opposed to having no feelings for 120,000 Ninevites. For people too. And you have no compassion for them. But God does. And God is the one who created the Ninevites. And he's also the one who created the plant. He's also the one who created Jonah. And so shouldn't Jonah, he's telling Jonah, shouldn't you care about the same things I care about? Because I am the creator and you are the creation. So what is God trying to say here? To help us kind of think through this, can we show the photo of a piece of gold? Yeah. That's a, a, a gold button that's on in a crucible. And so a lot of times when you fire up things, in dentistry, we, we had to learn how to make crowns. So we actually uh, waxed up crowns and then 
uh, cast gold to, to form the crowns themselves. So that's what the gold looks like. <coughs> that's a gold button. And then you, you uh, melt it, and then it's cast into a, um, into a casting uh, wax. And that's generally the same process for jewelry. And so when, when I proposed to Terry, I made this ring. And it's a heart-shaped ring. And so I did that because on engagement, I wanted her to choose the actual setting for the diamond and all like that. So it wouldn't be good to go buy a diamond and have it set. I wanted her to have the option of, of designing it. So I, I did a substitute. So this is my engagement ring proxy. And, and so when I proposed to her, I, I used that ring. Now, when she said yes, she didn't say yes because of that ring that I created. That ring, she wasn't trusting her future to that ring. It wasn't that amazing. Instead, she was putting trust in the creator of the ring. That's me. And in the same way, when we in life, we often look at the things that God has created and we idolize them. We actually put more feeling and, and, and uh, pridefulness in the things that we have versus remembering the one who created those things. And that's the point that, that God is trying to make with Jonah now, that you shouldn't respect the creation, you should respect the creator. And that is something I think a lot of us need to hear over and over again that to remember and appreciate the creator, the master of the universe, and not things that he has created. And that's the journey that all of us need to go through sometimes, especially when we're dealing with um, finding people who are not in the family of God. And that's what Global Missions is all about. We've heard the story of Jonah, and now I want to bring up a real life story of someone who's gone through a Jonah experience so would Amy Lim come up and we're going to hear her story. I have uh, a little few questions for her to answer. Let me pick up one of the mics there. Why don't we uh, welcome her so, so much. <laughs> so Amy, uh, I've known you for a long time and there's some parts I don't remember, uh, recall, but I enjoyed our time when we were out in Urbana in 2009, which is part of your mission story. Uh, but before your heart for missions, which is obviously evident today, how were you before you came to this realization? Eli. Um, so when I was in college, I was at Cal, and uh, my first hearing even of the mentioning of missions was a friend of mine that I took Japanese with. We saw each other every day. And one day he goes, hey, um, InterVarsity is going on a trip to Tijuana. I was like, oh, interesting. He goes, we're going on a missions trip. Would you like to come and join us? It'll be fun. And I thought, well, Tijuana is one thing, but a missions trip? Why would I want to go to Mexico for that? Um, I basically thought, you know what, I just decided I'm going to be majoring in business, so I really need to get my act together. My midterms are coming up. There's a lot of uh, homework that I need to be on top of. 
and all these clubs I need to be joining so it look good on my application, and I don't have time to go on something like that, even if it might be fun. So um, I just definitely pushed it back to the back, back, back of my mind. Um, missions was not for everybody, even if I was a self-professed Christian. And uh, years and years went by. Um, I, um, uh, it wasn't until um, probably 20 years later that I really considered missions. And so what actually changed your mindset? Um, so actually, uh, about 20 years later, um, I had kids. I had three of them, in fact. And uh, they were four, four twins, and one, as in I had just weaned the last one. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to get away. Um, <laughs> and what more legitimate way to get away from my kids than to go on a missions trip? <laughs> so I joined the CLC trip to Tijuana, ironically. <laughs> so I must say, it, it, it wasn't, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, my heart has been moved and I want to serve the people, whatever. It was actually completely out of selfishness um, of, of having a little time to myself that I went on it. Uh, uh, while on that, that short-term missions, was there something that you saw that, that kind of changed your perspective on missions? Yeah, so um, my first impression of Tijuana actually was obviously of great poverty. And I grew up in Taiwan, and I remember growing up that there were certain parts of town where like you get close to there and then you want to cross to the other side of the street because it was unclean, it was kind of smelly and you definitely don't want the people there or the, the sort of rabid dogs running around that area to be touching you. So when I saw Tijuana, that was what I saw and I was like, oh my gosh, I came here on purpose. Um, but instead of feeling like I need to get out of here, God actually broke my heart instead. And instead of um, wanting to get away, I wanted to actually find out why God took me there in the first place. So if you had a short time to tell mm -hmm. the church about, uh, about missions, what would you say? Um, when I came home from that first trip to Tijuana, um, I told my kids actually all about it. Again, they were very, very small at the time, but I don't know what it was in my description to them, but they were actually curious. And my daughters, who were then four, said, can we go to next time? <laughs> I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> but as the year went on and the missions trip opportunity came up again, um, they were, you know, approaching five. And I said, one of them, yes, let's go. Because I think you should see the rest of the world that God has created. And it's not just what we know every day in our privileged lives, the cars we drive, the, the food that we get to eat here, especially in the Bay Area. Um, there's so much out there that God also loves, and he wants us to know what he loves so that we can love it too. And that's why actually nowadays, um, I go on the Tijuana trip almost every year, and beyond that, I've taken my kids also to China and Japan, and just to, again, see what God has out there and what his heart um, breaks and bleeds for, um, because we too should care for that. All right, thank you. As we've been uh, learning this morning, our God-given identity is to be like God. That as image bearers of God, we should do God-like things. And God is on a mission, so we should be like God and be missionaries. 
So why care about missions? Remember that one thing I said in the beginning? Missions is not what we do. Missions is who we are. And, and to follow up this week or in the weeks to come, there's a couple of practical things that you can do to, to understand a mission, missionary's heart. And that is join a home group that is going through a special curriculum that, that we have written up for this series to the ends of the earth. And, and join a group and you'll learn more of how to be global missions minded. And it doesn't necessarily mean going out in the field. There are many other roles that can be part of it. So you can learn about this in the, in the home group. And the second thing uh, that can be practical is to begin prayerfully thinking about going on a short-term mission. Just like Amy said, that is usually the best way of changing your heart if you've always had this reluctance to missions to actually go on one. And God will do amazing things. It's done it to my heart when I've gone, and I know to others who have. And there's an opportunity to do a short-term missions, and I guess I may be the f announcing it for the first time. For many years, for about six years, we were doing an ice screening uh, in, in our local communities around here. And so we're actually going to do it again this summer. So for July 17th to the 20th, we are going to partner up again with Living Hope Neighborhood Church in Richmond to put on an ice screening where we deliver we do eye exams and actually deliver eyeglasses to, to needy people. So if you're interested in that short-term missions, we're actually looking for some, uh, some committed people, maybe 10, 10 to 15 of us to be the core leadership of this. So if you're interested, contact myself or Leslie Kong, uh, Gordon Wong, uh, Gilbert Matsuoka. And if you're interested, just come up to us and, and tell and we'll have a place for you. So we're looking for 10 to 15 people who will be a core part of this, this missions trip in July. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your compassion for each one of us. But that compassion isn't reserved just for us, but that's something you want us to share others. Just as you instructed Abram to be a blessing to others, we are blessed to be a blessing. So may we realize that and be grateful for that and not be like Jonah who was reluctant, but be people who are mission-minded because there is a power in the gospel that cannot be stopped. And may we, in our reluctancy, not stop it. So change us, transform us, so that we may be free to share the love of Christ to a needy world. So we thank you in Jesus' name.